Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. According to the NHS, anorexia nervosa is responsible for more life loss than any other mental health condition. Eating disorders are very common in today's society, and in this podcast series I focus on media's responsibility towards these statistics, and especially in regards to body image and appearance. But it's important to remember that there are other reasons behind these illnesses. Today, I have invited Alice Leverton to share her story. She suffered from anorexia a few years ago, but when I met her to take photos of her, she said that it had nothing to do with appearance. It was a coping mechanism she used to deal with the trauma she had experienced. We will talk openly about not just the illness itself, but also about losing family members and sexual assaults. And I therefore want to give you a trigger warning. If these topics make you feel uncomfortable, you could turn off right after Alice has introduced herself and the project she's working on. My aim with this episode is to spread awareness of anorexia, to prevent more people from getting it, and to help people who are related to anyone who suffers. I really admire Alice for speaking so openly about her own experience. And I think she will help a lot of you listeners by realising that you are not alone, either if you are struggling yourself or if you know anyone who is. If you need help or want to learn more about different kinds of eating disorders, you can visit Beat's website. There's a link in the show notes of this episode to their website. I hope you are in a comfortable and safe place now and ready to listen to Alice's wisdom. My name is Fanny Beckman, and this is Women of My Generation. clearly when I first exhibited um, Women in My Generation at the Dome and I overheard a group of older women saying that oh, there was one particular photo that I really liked and it was the one with the cat sitting on the bed <laughs> um, and here you are, Alice. 
Hello. How are you today? The cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. I'm really excited to be on a podcast. Yeah, you're actually my first guest up here in London, which is really exciting. Um, but you're obviously much more than a crazy cat lady. Yeah. You're also <laughs> an ugly girl, mm-hmm. and there's obviously a big reason that I say that. So, mm. would you like to explain why you call yourself an ugly girl? Yeah, I think uh, I I was always the girl that kind of didn't think I needed feminism. I think that's how I grew up. I was mm-hmm. a bit like, I didn't understand, I didn't get it. And I think I was like, well, I was raised, you know, my parents were quite open and accepting. And I was like, I've always been treated fine. Mm. And... The word ugly was, like, really what brought me to it. It just made me understand straight away. The idea that ugly could be the worst thing that someone could call me. Mm. And the idea that I had to try and not be that. Mm. And really, when when I sort of picked the word apart, I was like, but I am, and I'm allowed to be, Mm. and that's cool. Mm. And then when you get further into it, there are things that I thought were ugly about myself that people really liked, or there are parts of other people that I loved and admired, parts of their body, that they thought were horrendous. Mm. I was like, Mm. what even is it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So subjective, isn't it? Yeah, like, and I think I'd spent, you know, spent all of my teenage years worrying about what I look like and Mm. what other people thought I looked like Mm. and I think giving into that word and allowing it to be subjective and allowing myself to not have to fall into any sort of my own vision of pretty I guess um Mm. really empowered me and made me think back on actually how my life had been defined by the standards that were put on me because I'm a woman. Mm, mm. And then it clicked. I was like, God, I do need feminism. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. this is important. And if I, as quite a privileged white woman, really sat there and thought, well, I really need this. Like, mm. this has actually really been quite defining of me up until this point Mm. then there are a lot of women everywhere that need it way more than I do and I'm like I can contribute to that Mm -hmm. and um yeah it really sort of ended up being the thing that gave me a lot of purpose do you remember what age when you realized that you were a feminist I I mean it was It was, I was maybe 21, Mm. 22, Mm. like very late today. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I was, I I was raised in a small farming village Mm. uh, in the Midlands and I was exposed to a lot of what I guess those people would define as sort of casual racism and Mm. casual homo and banter and Mm. like casual misogyny yeah. like that I was just yeah. 
exposed to that and after then moving to Brighton and seeing how different the world can work, mm. not even too far away from yeah. um, I really started to unpick all of that mm. and realised how ingrained my own misogyny was. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Mm. And today you do loads of, like, feminist activism and do things to question the patriarchal structures. Yeah, it's um, like my whole work yeah, now, exactly. which is insane because I'm only 26, so yeah, it's quite yeah. a new thing, but... It's four or five years. Yeah, mm. and I just have found such a home within the movement, I guess, mm. and I feel quite safe with it, and I really feel, I feel like the, something that's happened in fe- feminism fairly recently, like in the fourth wave, mm. is realising just how much it intersects with. Yeah. Um, and I really love, actually, Hermione, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like her revival collective, and it's mm. like, fashion is a feminist issue. Yeah. And of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it is. And the mm. more you, you know, the more you go down it, you think, anything I've ever questioned or anything I've ever known to be oppressive mm. for other people, not just myself, other communities, mm. always ends up back intersecting with feminism. Yeah. Which, I mean, men's mental health mm. is campaigned for mm. alongside the feminist yeah. movement. Yeah. Like it's, So I think we're coming a really long way in a really productive way in actually being able to, like, make some real changes mm. yeah. for everyone. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you, for example, you want you run now the Clapback Club, yes. the theatre group. Yeah. Um, can you please tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so we um, we met through Fringe Theatre. There's a group of eight of us. Mm-hmm. So we all co-founded Clapback Club together. Yeah. Um, I'm the producer because I don't have any performing talent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we we we're we're, we're a creative group. We're mm-hmm. all from different backgrounds, um, professions, but we really sort of bonded on this idea that the the way we could get through to people. Um, is through comedy. <laughs> yeah. So we sort of a, we're a comedy musical theatre group mm-hmm. and a feminist collective. Mm. So one part of Clapback Club is that we do fringe theatre every year. Yeah. Award winning. Award winning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, currently do a show called In Loving Memory of Patriarchy, mm. which is a funeral for the patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, and it's we've just found what an amazing gateway it's been into having really difficult conversations. Yeah. We don't hold back whatsoever mm. on what we talk about and we're really not afraid to make a room feel uncomfortable and sit with um those feelings that aren't nice to mm. sit with. Mm. Mm. But then bring them back up again. Yeah. Uh and I think We've just found the magic in in how to get our message across. We talk mm. a lot about 
sexual assault, sexual abuse, and we put a lot of our own selves out there mm. in our shows. Mm. Um, it, yeah, things can get quite close to home, but then because we're such a tight group, mm. we feel so supported in that, yeah. and we feel able to make each other laugh. Mm. Um, How's that to perform to others then? It's hard. (laughs) It's hard. I mean, the performing, perhaps... Well, I mean, I couldn't really speak on it because I don't perform it. But Mm. the the shows are always really brilliant because you're getting the reaction. Mm. It's the rehearsals. Mm. We write everything ourselves collectively. So the writing is always really great because... We have amazing conversations and we always learn so much. Mm. Like, we are not the feminist collective that are going to tell you we know what we're talking about. Because, okay. you know, it's, I mean, we, uh, we covered a lot of sort of like the history of feminism last mm. year in our mm. show. And a lot of that came from us having to Google it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's amazing that you learn something as well. And yeah, yeah so it's lot. been yeah. great. And then, Again, that gives us a platform with our audiences mm. to educate mm. in a completely non-patronising yeah, way. Yeah, because we're sure. like, hey, we just found this out. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so we really do come from quite a personal close to home. Yeah, and and like researching through our friends mm. and through our communities. And yeah. um, so it can be tough, but then I think it really does speak to the power of like having your support system and your group because no one has ever found it too much because we've always had each other Mm. um and we and well the other part of cutback is that uh we work in sort of community outreach Mm -hmm. so uh we in back in the summer we founded um home safe brighton which was actually off the back of uh one of our members being assaulted on her way home from our rap party (laughs) where we were celebrating (laughs) we um we went to karaoke to Mm. celebrate winning uh second audience choice award yes um (laughs) and she she walked home by herself which should be fine yeah of course just to know Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and yeah she was assaulted on her doorstep so that is horrible yeah just absolutely safe space Um, yeah Mm -hmm. and she we encouraged her to report it she didn't have the best experience mm. with the sort of reporting process. Mm-hmm. So we had a little bit of a group meeting and we're like, we've got to do something. Yeah. And we sort of took the framework from like the body system. Mm. So we patrol at night in high vis with a little sign saying, come and chat to us if mm. someone's making you feel uncomfortable. We can walk you to a taxi, we can walk you to a bus, we always go in pairs, mm. uh, and we're really well supported by uh, Brighton and Hove Council mm. and uh, the police, yeah, so yeah. we're quite safe. Yeah. 
Um, and we're expanding into developing uh, some sort of creative schemes for local women's centres mm. and LGBTQ support services. So, um, yeah, that's incredible. And you also got some attention from media last summer as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, Home Safe sort of because we did it around the time that there was a really it it felt like an epidemic yeah, of sexual abuse mm-hmm. cases in Brighton. Mm-hmm. It was it just felt like it was every week. Yeah, and it was actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we developed our response at that time we ended up um being the feature story on bbc six crop news and Mm. itv Mm. meridian news Mm. which was really raising awareness but also a call for action of Mm. like why are these targeted sexual assaults happening Mm. when we look into that a little bit more we need to develop a response. Mm. There needs we we were calling what we were doing uh, like social action. So mm. there does need to be sort of a community response mm. to what's going on. Mm. But at the same time, what Home Safe highlighted was that while while we were willing and available to put ourselves out there at night time, mm. there's a hell of a lot of training and safeguarding needs going into that. Yeah. And there are a lot of people working in a lot of services who have that training and safeguarding. Mm. And I'm just not sure that there's enough support being delegated Mm. towards supporting people who are being abused. Like, domestic abuse, it's been going on for years. Yeah, yeah. Like, Like, as in, like, not behind closed doors or it's not mm. something people don't talk about mm. like it's people that o- people like openly joke about like yeah. oh like bad wife syndrome mm. blah, blah, blah. Mm. and like I've been um I've been working with Rise UK a fair mm. bit uh, and I've done some training with them and the way that that sector is still being neglected and not treated properly mm. is insane. Yeah. So and it just it, it's quite overwhelming. It feels like a bit of a minefield. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um so again there's so many prejudices against like domestic abuse. Like, I don't know, it happens to certain people mm-hmm. and it's typical victim perpetrator, but that's not the case yeah, at all. Well it's like the perfect victim and I mm. think you um something I always think is when when people think of a rapist, mm. which a lot of people are, a lot of people are, re- are reluctant to say that, mm. <laughs> it's like, but when you think of a rapist, I envision, like, uh, what's the film, The Lovely Bones? Have you seen no, it? I haven't seen it. And it's sort of this sort of like older guy with like the big rim glasses and mm. like an and it's like kind of creepy like that's like the profile mm. that has been given yeah, to us sure. and it, it like while that is one mm. way for a rapist to mm. look it mm. can also look like 
the 15 year old lad on his bike yeah you know what I mean like and I think the media has given us such a narrow perception of what what to look out for and that rapists hang out in alleyways Mm -hmm. but then also that victims are like we're damsels and we're um we're dressed a certain way Mm -hmm. and and that's a massive it, problem in court as well, that uh, victim blaming. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. Victim blaming is, I think, one of the most ingrained... One of one of the, like, bits of the patriarchy that is most ingrained, I yeah. think, into everyone. Mm. Because that why-don't-you-leave question mm. is... Everyone will think it. Mm. Like, I've experienced friends going through really awful abusive relationships. Mm. And because I love them and I find it so frustrating mm-hmm. that, they're, that they're in that situation and mm. that they're being treated that way, I will often find myself, oh, why can't she just get out of it? Yeah. yeah. You know? Mm. Um, and we really, really need to check ourselves a lot more I think when we're because you're a lot you know I allow I'm allowed to be frustrated Mm. that people I love are in that situation Mm. but it isn't their fault no exactly they didn't ask for that situation Mm. they didn't put themselves in that situation and they're not keeping themselves in that situation so yeah that's why it's really important to talk about these kind of things in media and uh, I'm sorry, like that BBC, um, how like, you d- were doing as well. Um, but obviously you have a lot of things going on, uh, lots of very interesting projects. Mm. And when we met, um, when I took photos of you, it was actually like nearly a year ago now. Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. Um, but you told me that you want to start an organisation um, to help young people who are grieving. Mm. Is that still something that you want to go ahead with? It is, and it's, I'm sort of at that point where it's like, how will this manifest? Mm-hmm. Because it was, I think at the time we spoke to it, I mm. wanted it to be like a website and a forum, because what one of the things, um, so my dad died two and a half years ago, when I was 24, mm. um, and my mum died 10 years before that, when I was 14. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm pretty pretty experienced in the, yeah. in the grief mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with my dad's death specifically, I was completely responsible for that admin. Like the sheer amount of yeah. admin yeah. that comes with it. And oh, I, could, I wasn't really grieving because I was so busy mm. doing admin. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't talk about that. Oh my god, we mm. didn't like mm. I I thought I knew it all. Like, yeah, you write a will, mm. you get a solicitor, like mm. no 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 like it's it's insane. Mm. Um it it took over my life mm. for a good year and a half. And I just remember Googling like, when I was confused about something, mm. I would Google it. And the only real information out there for the whole process of probate and death certificates and blah, blah, blah is um, 
is age UK, mm-hmm. and it's geared towards older people yeah, yeah, yeah. whose maybe their husband has died. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyone really, like mm. a partner, but, you know, age UK are geared towards an older yeah, audience. Yeah. And all of the information is with the complete assumption that, one, you know anything about the person's financial situation. Mm. Like, it was just sort of assumed that I knew who my dad paid his gas bill with. Yeah, like, yeah. I hadn't lived with him for six years, mm. maybe more. Mm. It's also under the assumption that you just know how to appoint a solicitor. Yeah. Like, mm. the, there's no section, like, how to... It's, it's like, appoint a solicitor and then... Yeah, yeah. So it's just the information I was finding really isn't geared towards a 24-year-old. Yeah. Even, like, language-wise, it's really difficult to read and understand. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah like, legal. They're like, um, sometimes you'll just read when you've got probate. But how do I get it? Yeah. What is it? Mm, exactly. <laughs> it's so incredibly confusing yeah. that I really... And every time I've spoken about it, um, I post quite a lot on my, just on my personal Instagram about mm. uh, the process and people do find it so useful mm. just to know how these things work yeah. and to know that two and a half years on, I still get letters that I'm in debt to someone <laughs> mm. because they overpaid my dead dad some sort of oh insurance. Like, mm. it's, it's kind of never-ending, and I think there's not a lot you can do about it. Mm. There's nothing I can do to make it better for anyone no, or no. make it not be a thing or really even change how that whole system works. Mm. Um, but... I think to be to be able to be prepared mm. for it and and know a little bit about the steps and what yeah. it all entails would have been so handy for me. And that's what you want to do before. Yeah, that's why I want to create. I just mm. it's it's almost like the practical stuff when you're grieving, especially when you're in immediate grief, mm. you're not thinking straight like no. you, and. And you're having to make some of the biggest decisions of your life. And by far the most amount of admin you'll ever have. I was Mm. calling it dadmin after it. I was like, I'm doing dadmin. Like, it's... At 24 At 24. Mm. And while that's... While that is slightly uncommon that someone at 24 wouldn't have either Mm. of their parents, it's not that. No. Uncommon that there shouldn't be. I have be. two friends, other friends who's in the same situation. Yeah, as well. exactly. Okay. I felt I'd always been in like the dead parent club since I was fourteen, mm. so I felt very like safe in that. Mm-hmm. When I got into the two dead parent club, mm. it was thinning out the amount yeah, of people yeah. I was meeting. Mm. But still, very common thing yeah. to happen. Mm. And I guess the trouble, the thing about being in your 20s mm. is that you're not legally or socially considered an orphan that needs help no, no, no. <laughs> you know you're not um you're no too one. old for that yeah and too young to you're too old for that. yeah mm. too young to sort of 
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Have any idea, and especially like the generation we're in now, mm. like, I don't understand about stocks and shares and things mm. that like my 60-year-old dad had in order mm. because he should have maybe at that age. And yeah. his generation, people... We're a lot more like, mm. well, they just had better opportunities, let's say. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it, it, I just found myself in this weird limbo mm. of, I wasn't young enough to receive that much help, mm. but I wasn't old enough to know what the hell was going on yeah. and what really to do. Mm. So that is, that is on my it's it's constantly in my thoughts of how I, okay. how I can communicate that mm. concisely mm. and helpfully without overwhelming people with information yeah. and that may well take for me to get a little bit further down my own grieving process mm. so that actually it doesn't feel overwhelming to me because yeah. sometimes writing that whole process mm. down is like it's like PTSD it's like mm. reliving it mm, <laughs> like, so oh mm. it's a project that I will constantly work on and as I, as my mental health gets better and as I'm feel a little bit more resolved mm. it will fall into place mm. and I and I'm really excited for for like what form that will take because yeah, yeah. I think it's so important mm, definitely and like you said it's really important to let yourself grieve as well and you haven't had a chance to do that and uh, when we met uh, before you told me that you developed different coping mechanisms first when your mum died when you were 14 um, that wasn't helpful for you in the long run it was probably helpful for you at the time, at the time yeah. <laughs> um, but could you tell us about that yeah, so my my mum was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when I was 12, mm. and she died when I was 14, mm. which is a really annoying age, <laughs> because it, it sort of like defined me then, mm. like I think 12 to 14, you have no idea who you are, mm. and you're finding that out then or you're at least you're sort of building like the blocks Mm. of what you might be like as a person yeah uh and for me that whole period was defined by 
my mum dying mm. or being ill. And in some respects, I found her being ill worse than her dying because okay. she was, you know, she really suffered. Mm. Um, I don't know what, like, I don't know what you define as, like, okay cancer, but she had, like, not okay cancer. <laughs> like, her treatment, it, mm. was, it, was, it was hard to sort of live with and be around. Mm. And, um, yeah, as a response to that, I uh, developed anorexia. Mm. Um, but you said that um, it had nothing to do with appearance. No. It was a coping mechanism. Yeah, mm. and to be honest, I... When I think back on it, I I can't really think sort of when it started and when it ended. Mm. And I've done a lot of analysing of it over the years, so now I'm at a point where I can talk about it mm. um, and understand it. But at the time, it was just... I didn't even really think about it. No. But, so I... Um, I never had body dysmorphia, essentially. Mm. Um, I, But then I will say it was somewhat attached to appearance in that I was always um, slim. Mm. Um, like, I've always had, like, especially when I was a kid, I was just tiny, like, yeah. really tiny frame. And people would comment on that all the time mm. like especially you know 12 you go into secondary school mm. and I wasn't like super popular mm -hmm. um I wasn't super confident mm -hmm. uh when I first started school and the one thing that people would always know me for mm. they'd pay attention to me because I was skinny mm -hmm. and it wasn't nice attention mm. But for a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, mm. it was attention. Mm. So to the point where there was there was there was boys in older years to me and they would call me Anna. And it used to really upset me because I was like, they don't know my name. Mm. <laughs> like that's how that made me feel. I was like, they they just don't even know no. who I am. Mm. And that made me feel Horrible, mm. on top of what I was going through with my mum. Yeah, and just being a hormonal teenager who wants mm. attention. It's tough anyway. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it wasn't for a really long time that I realised they were calling me Anna, like, as short for anorexic. Oh, like, they had no. nicknamed me. And I didn't have an eating disorder at this point. No. But I... I, I was so socialised, like, my environment, mm. everyone felt like they had claimed to talk about my body. Mm. Like, it was just their right. Mm. It was their right to nickname me mm. Anna. <laughs> like, um, and it sort of became my thing. Mm. Like, I know it sounds odd, no, but doesn't. I was going through such trauma really at home mm. I didn't know whether I was coming or going I didn't know who I was and mm. I so desperately just wanted to be liked and to fit in mm. and to take my mind off what was going on at home and to yeah, make yeah. loads of friends mm. and um that I would have I would have taken any 
anything from them. Like mm. I, I never asked them to stop calling me Anna. Mm. Like I essentially took this thing that I felt was me and mine, mm. which mm. was being skinny, mm. and ran with it. Mm. <laughs> and I, I the, and then I developed anorexia, mm. and it to the point where it nearly killed me. And because you went into hospital. Yeah, I, I mean, I was referred. This was sort of happening as my mum was ill, and after my mum had died, I was then referred to um, a specialist facility for children with eating disorders, which was an in and out patient centre, sort of all in one. And I was offered counselling. Uh, I didn't like my counsellor at all, but that was a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I was diagnosed then with clinical anorexia. Okay. Which, and this was in 2007, mm. and we've come a long way, and I'm glad, because yeah. essentially what this, what they meant was I was physically anorexic. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. but I wasn't experiencing body dysmorphia therefore they didn't say I was just anorexic oh, okay oh is that a different treatment then <sighs> I honestly like don't know like mm. I don't I still don't understand it to this day mm. it was you're clinically anorexic meaning mm. I, I mean I was 14 15 years old weighing in at like four stone like I was tiny yeah so it's like yeah well you're starving yourself mm. and um you're tiny <laughs> like mm. you're like you're really not in a, a good way yeah. So you are anorexic, but because it's not because you think you're fat, mm. you're not actually anorexic, was essentially what yeah. I was given. Mm. So they were treating me for weight gain. Mm. And when it came to the mental health side of it, mm. they were like, oh, well, you're grieving. Your mum's died. And that's kind of where that ended. Yeah. So bad. So it's like... There should I be was a being bigger reason for it. Because <laughs> I mean, lots of people develop eating disorders to kind yeah. of control something. They feel right. like they've lost control of mm-hmm. something in their lives and they control food instead. And they should know that, the clinic. Right. Like, I have had to figure... I've sort of had to figure out these answers for myself as mm. I've got older. But in that moment and in my treatment plan as a 14-year-old girl... Um, I'm seeing dietitians, nutritionists. I'm being like force fed mm. to get the weight on me because mm. I'm my BMI was. I can't tell you how many times that BMI wheel was brought out, mm. but no one was. No one was helping me explore what grief meant. Mm. You know, mm. it was always just you're grieving, you're mm. grieving. Your mum's mm. died. Of course you ill of course you this and no one was really letting me understand that Mm. so it yeah 
Because you were so young, you probably didn't understand it yourself. No. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't really know that you had an eating disorder at no. the time. Was it someone else who told you? Was it a family member or friends? Or It's more... I think I just figured... I think it was obvious to me. After I'd... And again, I couldn't, I couldn't really tell you where the end to it was, but, mm. you know, I put the weight on and I, I left school, which was a big thing because mm. all those people were gone yeah, out of my yeah. life. But it was really, as I began to recover and I was able to reflect back, that I was like, no, no, that was a that was a, a huge mental health issue mm. because no, I didn't look in the mirror. I looked in the mirror and I was disgusted at how little weight was on me. Mm. Like I was under no illusions of that, mm. but that that is not one way to be anorexic. Mm. Like body dysmorphia is a thing. Mm. Uh, it's not like the only mental health issue mm. tied to eating disorders no. and that's just yeah. how it was viewed mm. like mm. at at that time which is a shame and I now know that it was that there was two layers to it but one of them was quite frankly just self-harm mm. like I I didn't care I just didn't care mm. Um, I didn't feel any which way, like, need to nourish myself mm. or to feel well. And the the other part of it was the control, like you said. Mm. And the choice, I guess. Mm. I feel like every... The whole experience with my mum, I had absolutely no choice or control over anything. And I felt quite restricted by that mm. and I I distinctly just remember thinking like oh I don't have to eat if I don't want to eat like it, and it felt liberating if yeah. that makes any sense because I had choice mm. and um and I'd found out that if I just smoked it would suppress my appetite mm. <laughs> so it, ju- it just made me feel like I had choice and, and like I could choose what I was doing mm. and all these things that society was telling me like you have to eat three times a day you have to brush your teeth you have mm. to go to bed any of that and like you shouldn't smoke too much or drink too much mm. I was just going the other way mm. and it felt like so liberating mm. to be like no, I don't have to. Yeah. I can do what I want. Mm. And because I didn't actually care what happened to me whatsoever, mm. I had no inhibitions. Mm. I didn't care who around me was affected by my devastation. Yeah. <laughs> um, it it was... I loved it. Mm. Obviously, it was awful now on reflection. Yeah, let's stress that We don't want anyone else to. Yeah, like, this. exactly. Mm. At the time, it felt so liberating and it's like single-handedly the worst thing that's ever happened to me mm. like it it couldn't I I mean I have long I have like 
long-lasting health effects from mm. it. Mm. I have chronic pain and illnesses as a result of it. Mm. Um, I feel like sort of like behind in life mm. now. So mm. I'm a 26-year-old woman, but I've spent all of my formative years under the thumb of mm. this horrible thing yeah. that I thought I was completely in control of. Mm. Mm. So the contrast between when I was really in the throes of it, mm. feeling so liberated mm. and needing that element of control, I couldn't have been less in control of yeah. myself. Yeah, uh, That's so true. Yeah, and realising that and that a big part of healing was understanding that and having to unpick that myself mm. because therapists were telling me that mentally I was sound mm. and normal and fine which mm. I, I I would argue no one who has an eating disorder could be ticked off as like oh you're fine mm. your brain's fine right. it's just your body mm. like that's not how it works yeah. but that was how it was presented to me okay so that was fulfilling my that was backing up my own thoughts that I was fine mm. essentially <laughs> okay, and I, th I think a lot of people who are either related or, or friends with someone who is ill struggle to know what they can say or can they even mention that you lost weight or or what can they do to support someone? It's so... It's really hard to say, and I think it depends, one, on the person, and two, on the relationship mm. you have with them. One of the things that I still can't bear to this day is people asking me if I've eaten. Mm. Um, it's just one of those questions that, like, fills me with anger because it was such a question mm. that was constantly asked to me have you eaten what have you eaten oh, okay. calorie count like mm. have you had enough calories mm. keep a diary of what you've eaten like who, who did ask that, who asked that? the therapist mm. who then made my family uh, so it was like I felt like I was being grilled on it mm. so there are ways that I find easier because People do need to check on in on me that I'm eating. Mm. Because even though I would say I'm recovered, mm. I recovered from the life-threatening bout of mm. anorexia, which lasted three-ish years. Um, but it's always sort of around. And mm. when my dad was ill, he, uh, he had cancer for two years as well. Mm. It was very much in the back of my mind, his mind, everyone's minds. Like, this was Alice's coping. Mm. Is it, like... It be the same. Yeah, mm. like, because, well, it's just muscle memory. So, like, yeah. And we all knew that I would have no control over it. Mm. And I, by this point, knew that I wasn't in control of that mm. situation mm. and no longer was I liberated. Mm. Um... Uh, my my best friend Laura is the best at it. We mm. lived together when my dad was diagnosed, mm. so she got the real brunt of my 
the beginning of my grief, I would mm. say, for my dad through the diagnosis. And she will she will never ask me, have you eaten? And she'll rarely say, what do you fancy? Mm. She'll go, I'm going to have this. Do you want some? Mm. And even if I say no, she'll make it. And I'll always have if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, she, it, it will never be, f- it's, I think it's about how you frame it. Mm. This is for me, mm. but I do think across the board it is quite helpful. Mm. I think one of, one of, one of the difficult things when you have a disorder mm. is, like, the choice. Mm. Because when I was really in the throes of grieving for my dad if someone gave me the choice do you want to eat I would say no Mm. if someone put food you put a bowl of crisps on the table Mm. I would pick at it without even thinking Mm. so for me it was about how food was being presented to me okay and how it was associated and it could be a social thing Mm. so we could you know we'll just be sat around a table and if there is food on that table Mm. I will almost subconsciously eat that food mm. if someone says to me is that today or at that time as well in general today mm. still that mm. is how I work better yeah. like love me some tapas because mm-hmm. it's mm. just you know mm. a meze and good yeah. love a buffet mm. but certainly like when I was really 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 struggling I needed it to be treated as casual and as unroutine oh, as okay. it could be mm. so it's so I couldn't and no focus on you. I couldn't focus mm. on have I eaten breakfast have I mm. eaten lunch because mm. then that panics me mm. and then I kind of won't mm. it almost has the opposite effect yeah. if I'm thinking too routinely but if it's just casually <laughs> like put in front of me I'm made social and not made, like, this extra thing I have to do. Mm. I think that is where the sort of disordered eating has lasted with me, is I still struggle to view it as just something that I do or enjoy. Mm. I sometimes, If I have a lot to do and I feel overwhelmed, it, eating is part of that I'm like mm. oh and I've got to find time mm. to cook and like like yeah. I, that that's maybe like where I still struggle a little bit do you have any um what do you do in those situations when you think like that I can you st- take a step back and, and see I can yeah. which again I since my dad died I've been in therapy mm. proper good therapy mm-hmm. that isn't mm. Yeah, you <laughs> would recommend that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think now now I'm an now I'm an adult and I'm a, I'm much more self aware and I know myself better. Mm. That has been going into therapy from that mm. has been so helpful. Mm. Going into therapy as a fourteen year old who's completely lost their mind. Mm. <laughs> um, I never felt agency over the experience and I didn't care and I was really disconnected. Whereas this time around, after my dad died, I was like, I am experiencing some relapse behaviours. I knew this would happen. I don't Mm. want it to happen. Mm. Let me 
nip it in the bud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and with my with my therapist, she's been able to sort of train me into looking in on my own mental health mm. and being inquisitive about mm. it. Mm. Because I'm so interested in other people and their experiences and their minds and how they work. Yeah. And I've always been really interested. Mm. So she's helped me turn that background on my own mm. brain. Yeah. Um, well, that's great that you found some tools that you actually yeah. useful in the long run. Now. I would say that's my biggest mm. tool. Um, and I think by just talking about it, you've helped a lot of people now um, who can relate to it and hopefully find different healthy coping mechanisms for themselves as well. Definitely. I think we, we could sit here and talk forever because there's so much to <laughs> mention for sure. Um, but unfortunately, we have to wrap it up now. But um, thank you so much for talk, talking so openly about it. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.